Good morning, everybody. I'm glad to be here with you today, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to preach, the opportunity to worship with you all, and hopefully to encourage you with um, uh, Philippians 3 here. Uh, before we get started, let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity that you've given me, and thank you for um, just everything that you've put into place to allow us to meet, uh, to provide for us, just everything that you've given us, Lord. You are generous, and uh, Lord, we are thankful. So please help me as I uh, preach on Philippians 3 here, and please help it to be well-received. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So people always talk about the book of Philippians um, as a really encouraging book. And that's true, it really, really is. As with all of Paul's letters, though, uh, his goal isn't to make us feel um, comfortable. His goal isn't to make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside and, oh, I'm so encouraged. That's, that's not his purpose in writing these letters to the churches. His goal for us is to follow Christ. And until that day when we are finally and fully free from sin, we all need admonishment as much as we do encouragement. Paul has both for us in this passage. So please listen as I read Philippians 3, 1 to 11, and after that we'll work through it. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever these were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count the mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul just gave the Philippians many commands in the chapters preceding this one. Uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be unified. Work your salvation out with fear and trembling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we should take all of these things to heart. These are excellent things that we need to remember. But apparently Paul has written at least some of them before. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, he says in the first verse. And he calls it a safeguard for his audience. Do you think of it as a safeguard? Different men come up here and preach week after week, and the messages are all different. 
But ultimately, we're all saying kind of the same thing. We've all got the same real core message. Why? Why do we keep telling you the same thing over and over again? Because it is a safeguard for the body. Because we so easily forget, and we need to be constantly reminded, we need to be constantly reminded. God knows this about us. There's a reason that God uses such a noble creature as the sheep to describe us. Uh, John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The Lord has spoken to us through his word, and his sheep know his voice. Let's pay attention whenever we hear it, because it's a safeguard for us. Now, that being said, I don't think that Paul is only referring to what came before in his letter. Uh, Paul is very, very consistent, and the message that follows appears numerous times throughout the New Testament. He starts in verse 2, beware of the dogs. Whoa. Have you ever seen one of those signs in someone's yard uh, warning about their dog? Beware of dog, right? There's one in my neighborhood. It has a picture of some gnarly-looking beast of a dog, and the caption reads, I can reach the fence in 2.4 seconds. <laughs> can you? Uh, no. No, I don't think that I can. Um, thanks for the warning. I'll stay out of your yard. You know, there's, a, there's this wrought iron fence that this thing is posted on, and I think it's as much to keep me out as to keep that thing in, right? The simple fact that Paul thinks it's necessary to warn us means that there is very real danger. Pay attention. This is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's a very specific group of people that Paul is warning the believers in Philippi about. Compare verses 2 and 3, and you'll start to learn a bit more about this group. Uh, these people, the dogs, the evil workers, are of the false circumcision. And they're compared to those who are true, who worship in the Spirit, and who glory in Christ Jesus. The dogs do not recognize the kingship of Christ but the second group does. The second group of people puts no confidence in the flesh, but the first group does. The dogs and evil workers put confidence in their false circumcision. If you remember, circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant, or the Mosaic Law. Every Jewish male was supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. There's something both sinister and deceptive about this group, the false circumcision. The fact that Paul calls them dogs is really telling. Dog was used as a pejorative by the Jews towards the Gentiles. Uh, even Jesus used this word in this way when he was talking to the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, she was pleading with him to heal her daughter in Matthew uh, 15, 25 to 27. Listen. 
But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So who are these people then? Who are the dogs? Are they Gentiles? Are they somebody else? Uh, Paul makes this evident for us starting in verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Listen to this part of verse 4 again. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. What Paul shares with us in describing what confidence in the flesh looks like are his credentials as a Jew under the Mosaic law. The false circumcision, the dogs, the ones putting their confidence in the flesh are the Jews under the old covenant. Paul wasn't just a typical Jew, though. He excelled in Judaism. Paul was the Jewest Jew. He had it all, the circumcision, the lineage. When it came to the actual rule following, Paul was a Pharisee. When it came to his zeal for the law, Paul was a persecutor. He was feared all throughout the church. He even imprisoned women and children, leaving them to starve in prison. And Paul was standing there holding everyone's coats and watching in approval as the Jews stoned Stephen to death. These are the deeds of the man that described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see this form a lot, uh, such of such. Now you see that applied a lot in the scripture. Have you ever heard of the king of kings? The lord of lords? Of all kings, Jesus is the highest king. Of all lords, he is the highest lord. And this form is called the superlative. Paul is telling us that of all Hebrews, he was the most Hebrew. No one could compare. No one could compete with his lineage, devotion, and zeal. Paul's pre-Christian life is what it looked like to be a Jew under the old covenant. And Paul shares a warning with the church at Philippi. Beware of the dogs. The dog wants to tear you to pieces, and he can reach the fence in 2.4 seconds. Don't even go there. Stay away from the fence, seriously. But this isn't some new message for Paul. Just one of Paul's many warnings against the flesh. That is, adherence to the old covenant. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us as Christians. Now, what does Paul tell us the purpose of the law was, after all? Uh, in Romans 5.20, we read, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. The natural man rebels against the rulership of God, and the Jews under the law were no exception. That doesn't make the law bad, doesn't make it evil. As Paul tells us, uh, Romans 7, 9 to 12, where he writes, I was once alive apart from the law, 
But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sin rebelled against what was holy and good. And that sin killed the Jews under the law just as much as it killed the Gentiles to whom God revealed himself in creation. As Christians, we are neither killed by the law nor helpless in the world without guidance. Christians walk by the Spirit, not by the law. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 to 18, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Stay away from the law. Stay away from the dogs whose sin is incited by it and do not allow them to lead you astray. Paul flipped his countrymen's understanding of God's chosen people on its head. Righteousness is not achieved by the law, rather it's achieved by faith. Inheritance is not a matter of lineage, rather it's a matter of adoption through Christ. Where Gentiles were once separated from God and considered dogs, now they're the true circumcision and the true heirs, members of true Israel. And as Paul wrote in Romans 2, 28 to 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, I think the warning there is pretty clear, right? But how often are we actually dealing with Jews trying to bring us under the Mosaic law? No one tried to stone me on my way into church today. It's a pretty easy drive. I trust you all had a similar experience. Do you think this is a warning we can safely ignore? Different context, different time, not a big deal, right? Uh, to that, I would say no. What the Jews did in their day is still common practice in ours. Only the context of the sin has changed. The sins of the Jews were not only refusing to bend the knee to the manifest Christ, God incarnate, Jesus himself in the flesh before them, but also setting themselves up as lords over him and over his word. Jesus has numerous interactions with the Jewish leaders recorded throughout scripture, describing this exact scenario. Mark 7, 5 to 13, the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples eating bread with unwashed hands. And this exchange takes place. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat the bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, but in vain do they worship me 
teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. The Jewish leaders of that day set themselves up as the interpreters and enforcers of the law, the guardians of it. But in reality, the blind were leading the blind. And they both fell into the pit of their own sin, and they died there. How often do we, as the church, refuse to allow the scripture to say what it so clearly says? We reinterpret it for our modern sensibilities. We tolerate sin rather than vanquishing it. How many denominations in the U.S. today are on the death march away from the scripture and are sprinting towards the ordination of women, the acceptance of homosexuality, and every other wicked thing that follows? Acceptance for us is what Corbin was for the Jews. It is a capitulation trending towards the desires of man rather than the requirements of God. Whatever social standing or prestige a person may gain from evil is ultimately of no value at all, no gain whatsoever, because something much greater could be awaiting them. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. And he had reason to do so. All his zealotry was directed at pleasing a God who he fundamentally misunderstood and denied. He refused him. His understanding of God did not conform to reality. 1 John 2.23 says that whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Paul, as a Jew, denied the Son. He refused to recognize his kingship and therefore was ultimately not worshiping God. He was serving something else entirely. Despite all of his zeal, it resulted in nothing but sin. What have you raised up in your life, treating it as an idol? What do you pursue with zeal, 
knowing all the while that it is not the Lord Jesus Christ, the Master, the Messiah, the Lord, the one whose name you bear. There are a lot of things that you can pursue in this life. But one that was especially for tempting, one that was especially tempting for me at one point was video games. I got my first video game console in the 90s. And um, for those of you in the know, who probably struggled with everything I'm about to describe, it was a Nintendo 64. Uh, my brother has it now. Um, we still have it. <laughs> Um, but my older brother, Michael, convinced my aunt to buy it for us for Christmas. And I tell you, I had never seen anything like it. You look back now, and it's pretty bad, but then it was just incredible. Uh, the appeal was immense. One moment I could be sitting there flying uh, an airplane or driving a go-kart. Uh, the next, I was some warrior on a horse saving the princess and the kingdom. I mean, what else would you want to do, right? And I could even play it with my friends from my couch, doing all of these things. Video games became the most important thing to me. They were my hobby. I lived out in Falcon, right? That was 25 miles east of here. Um, we were the first house on the block. There was nobody out there. It was me and my brother and our Nintendo 64, okay? Falcon in the 90s, <laughs> okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. So it became my hobby. It became my social activity. Um, friends would drive out from town and we would play video games. Uh, but ultimately, it became my addiction and my idol. School was boring. I hated it. So I just played Zelda instead of doing my geometry. College was really, really boring. And the classes generally put me to sleep. But I had World of Warcraft to look forward to when I got home. So I really just didn't care that much about anything. I couldn't possibly count the number of hours I spent playing games as a kid. But the games I played as an adult kept track for me. Uh, between just two of my favorite games in my 20s, I racked up well over 6,000 hours of playtime. At one point, I thought, man, 6,000 hours. That's just two games. Like, what could you do with that? I mean, surely you could cut down a forest, hew the wood, build an orphanage from the ground up. Like, surely you could do something useful with that, right? But eventually, the thing which I pursued with such zeal smashed headlong into the thing that I should have been pursuing. My class schedule for seminary started to conflict with my gaming schedule. When you play 6,000 hours, you, you schedule it out. I tried to make it work, but it was ultimately impossible. It was just no way. It's almost like it was orchestrated that way. In the end, the decision was easy. The skills that I had developed, the enjoyment, the camaraderie, the endless memories, uh, with scores of friends, so many people, racking up victory after victory. I counted it all as a loss for the sake of Christ. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Brothers and sisters, your zeal has been redeemed too. To redeem something means to buy it back. Jesus purchased you and your zeal. He owns you and he commands you. Redirect your zeal for the sake of Christ. Consider all of its previous fruits as loss so that you can taste the fruit of the tree of life in eternity. No toy, no movie, no vacation, no hobby, no fantasy football team, no Super Bowl victory will ever be as sweet as that first bite which comes after hearing, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But if you find that you really don't have much zeal for anything, it's time to find it for Christ. Just like Paul, you do not have a righteousness of your own. He and his countrymen tried to derive it from the law. Whatever you derive it from, whatever makes you feel like you're okay, you're doing fine, it will disappoint you. Only the righteousness that is found through faith in Jesus Christ can save you from eternal torment. But more than that, those who have faith in Jesus Christ will join him, first in death to the things of this world, and then in life for eternity. Listen to Matthew 19, 27 to 29. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. What was true for the disciples is true for you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you for preserving your word for us. And Lord, thank you for your consistency. Thank you for your clarity. Lord, thank you for the amazing gifts that you give us nonstop on a daily basis. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to put those things aside. Lord, prevent them from being distractions and help us to pursue with zeal the task that you've set before us, whatever that may look like, Lord. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.